0: and open with us uh, to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is the ninth prophet uh, in our 12th man series through these 12 minor prophets. Now, why are we walking through these minor uh, prophets? And why do we have these 12th man uh, towels? I I love the pictures. I want to show you some latest pics of Uh, featuring these 12th man towels. Here's 70 miles out in the Atlantic Ocean. How about that? He said he was fishing for fish, Jim said, but he also said he was fishing for men on that boat. That's a good thing. Here's one of our students at a football game. Here's one of our children and his dad at another football game. Check that out. And then this one, I don't know if I'd do this one. This is hang gliding with a twelfth man. I just don't know about hang gliding, but man, keep sending those in. Why, why are we featuring these? What are we doing with these? Well, there's some promises that God has made to us. And the good news is that he keeps his promises. Do you know that? God just doesn't make them. Like we make promises that we rarely keep them. God doesn't just make them, he keeps them. And these are promises that have stood the Forever and they'll stand forever And so we want to get excited about these minor prophets And we want to get excited about the promises we find uh, In uh, these, these books that we're walking through And so let's re- be reminded of what we've looked at so far Hosea, uh, minor prophet Hosea reminded us that God's love is never less than relentless It's always more than that but never less than that uh, Joel reminded us that the day of the Lord is closer today than any other day Uh, The book of Amos reminded us that if we seek the Lord, God promises we will live. Uh, Obadiah says God helps the humble. That's a great promise from God. I'm thankful for that one. Jonah says that God responds to repentant hearts. Uh, That's a great promise from God. How about Micah? No one, no thing, or no other God is like our God. There is no other like our God. Uh, Nahum says that God will clear the not guilty, but not the guilty. It's a great promise. And Habakkuk has promised us last week. We, we learned that God will heal every hurt. So today we're in the ninth prophet, and we'll look at the ninth promise of God in a message that I've entitled, The Both and Prophet. The Both and Prophet. So if you're in Zephaniah 1, say, I'm there. Look at verse 12. Here we go. We'll start at verse 12. I just want to read this verse as we get started here. At that time, now the time is referring to those three words, at that time, this is the day of the Lord. I mean, the theme of Zephaniah, more than any other minor prophet, he mentions the day of the Lord over more than any other one. And so he's talking about the day of the Lord on that day when the Lord comes again, the day of judgment. And so he says, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent Those who say in their hearts, notice that, say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. God is saying, I'm going to punish the people who say they're not going to be punished because God's not going to do ill and God's not going to do good. There were people in Zephaniah's day that believed that, hey, it doesn't matter how I live or what I believe. It doesn't matter because God's not going to do good, nor will he do ill. It's kind of like us saying today, well, it really doesn't matter how we live or what we believe because Jesus is not going to say on that day, well, good and faithful servant. And he's not going to say on that day, depart from me, you doer of evil, for I never knew you. That's kind of like us living that way. That's how they were living in Zephaniah's day. And they were saying it in their hearts. They weren't going around saying it with their lips. They were saying it in their hearts. They'd grown complacent. In their hearts. And Zephaniah stands up. The Holy Spirit gets him to stand up and says, wait a minute. It's not that God won't do either or. That he won't do good or he won't do ill. The fact is he's going to do both and. He's going to do good and he's going to do ill. There's going to be a day of judgment and a day of joy all at the same time. He's going to do both and. Anybody like to go to Dollywood? All right, does anybody ever go to Dollywood? You been to Dollywood? All right, how many of you enjoy it? How many of you endure it for the sake of your family? Okay, you endure it, right? Okay, we went to Dollywood Tuesday, loaded up the family, went to Dollywood, and as we were entering the park... There was a family leaving the park. There are many families leaving the park. Because we went later in the day. We wanted to see all the lights at night. And so we didn't know, mo- most of the time we go early in the day, but we went later that night. And as we're walking in, there's this family walking out. It's this dad. He's got this toddler in a, in a body body lock on his shoulder. And this kid is screaming at the top of his lungs. He's throwing his arms and hands, and he's kicking his feet. He's throwing the biggest temper tantrum that you'd ever see and behind him is the mother and she looks like she's been in a war zone and they're leaving the park and the dad looks at us with a big old smile on his face and says see what you've been missing all day at Dollywood what a great day it's been at Dollywood I don't know why theme park commercials don't don't capture people when they're leaving the park they don't they only advertise people going into the park. And there's probably a reason why. And then we saw another couple when we got in there, and he looked at his wife, and we were walking beside him. He said, I just can't bear another, another day of this. And I don't, I'm, not, I'm not Dr. Phil, but I don't think he was talking about his marriage. I think he was talking about being at, at Dollywood. And then there were other people there that were enjoying it and having the time just a great time. And so when we think about a place like that, it's a place where both people are enjoying it and enduring it. And, and the day of the Lord is going to be a, a time uh, on this in, in this world for all humanity, that it will be a day of judgment and it will be a day of joy. Some will be judged and some will experience joy and others will experience joy and some will be judged. And so that that's the big idea from this message because again Zephaniah's main theme is the day of the Lord. And so let me go ahead and give you the takeaway. It's on the top of your worship guide on the back. It reads this way, the day of the Lord is a day of both judgment and joy, not either or, but both and. Now, depending on where you are in Christ, if you know Christ or not, rather, it will be either or for you. It will either be judgment or joy certainly, but it will be a day of both and there will be people who Reject Christ and people who have put their faith and trust in him. And that is the, that determines whether or not it will be a day of joy for you or a day of judgment. So Zephaniah paints both sides of the picture. In these three chapters, he gives us what the judgment's going to look like. And he gives us what the joy is going to look like. And any sane person would want to choose the joy. Okay? I'm just telling you, you're going to as we walk through this book together. So it's going to be both a day of judgment and a day of joy and how I want to do this I want to point out six realities that Zephaniah gives us about that day that we can realize today okay that that affect us today so here's six realities about that day that have an impact on us today number one terrible views of God today lead to terror on that day if you have a terrible view of God today a non-biblical view of God today, and there's plenty of them out there, then that day will be a day of terror for you. And we're going to see how Zephaniah does this. Now, first of all, I want you to look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. You know, one of the challenges for me, as your pastor walking through a series like this, is I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but each one of these minor prophets, their theme is judgment and salvation. Have you noticed that? I mean, that's just all 12 of them. All 12 of them talk about judgment. All 12 of them talk about salvation. So the challenge for me is how am I going to come to you each week with a new fresh look at judgment and salvation? How am I going to present this to you in a new and a fresh way? Well, the good news is that these prophets, each one of them have a personality. Each one of them have a nuance about them that may be different from the other one. For example, Zephaniah in verse 1. This is very unique to Zephaniah. There are four generations mentioned here. That is unusual. Why is that? We'll see in just a moment. And here's how it starts. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. And just notice, he's got a little flow here to him. Look look at this. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, uh, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah. That's got a little like a little Hebrew hip-hop to it, doesn't it? It's got a little flow to it. So I I can't help myself. Uh, You know me. I can't help myself. So what I need you to do is just bear with me for about 30 seconds. I want to introduce to you Zephaniah in a way that he's probably never been introduced to you before. Okay, so Nate, dog, can you give me a beat? Like that. Let's do this. Zephaniah, not Obadiah. Zephaniah, not Zachariah. Zephaniah, the son of Cushi. The son of Gedaliah, not the son of Gucci. Zephaniah, son of Amariah. Zephaniah, son of Hezekiah. Zephaniah, in the days of Josiah. Zephaniah, point us all to Messiah a little Hebrew hip-hop there and a little flow to it. Again, there's a reason there's four generations. I wanted to point that out to you. I just couldn't help myself with the little Hebrew hip-hop there. Okay. Notice these four generations, though. It, it is very unique. He, he's, he talks about being the son of all these guys whose names rhyme with his name. <laughs> and one of them is Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. He, Zephaniah is the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. Why is that important? King Hezekiah was a king who pleased the Lord. I mean, he pleased God. He, in fact, God extended his life 15 years. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter twenty. You can read all about how Hezekiah, Isaiah, the prophet, came to see Hezekiah. Hezekiah, you're going to die. Hezekiah turned to the Lord and began to pray. And God sent Isaiah back. He says, okay, uh, on the third day you go to the temple, I'm going to extend your, your life 15 years. And that's very significant. On the third day. On the third day, he said, you go to the temple. On the third day, you do these things and your life is going to be extended 15 years. So what does that point us to? My soul, church, that points us to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah himself, who on the third day was raised to life, not to extend his life 15 years. Jesus has no beginning and no end. But he was raised on the third day to extend to all who will believe in him eternal life. So even in the genealogy, Zephaniah is pointing us to Messiah. Messiah. And he doesn't stop there. Notice in the days of Uzziah, King Uzziah, here's a king that that pleased the Lord. In fact, there was a reformation in King Uzziah's day. They lost the Bible, the Bible was missing, and nobody even knew it was missing. And then the priest, Hilkiah, goes into the temple. He finds the book of the law, he finds the Bible. And in 2 Kings 22, in verse 8, 11, 23, and 3, the Bible says that he found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And when the king, King Uzziah, heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes and he stood before all the people and he made a covenant before God. He said, I will keep all your commandments, your testimonies, your statutes. Uh, with all my heart, with all my soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And then everybody there, every, the Bible says all the people joined in. There was a reformation. There was a revival that broke out in this king's day. Well, unfortunately, when we come to Zephaniah, this is before that reformation. Okay, This is before they found the Bible. So they are without a Bible when we get to Zephaniah, the the, the prophet of God. And so what happens when we discard the Bible what happens when we ignore the Bible what happens when we misplace the Bible what happens when we stop reading it and stop praying it and start stop sharing it and stop journaling through it and what happens when we when we have no Bible here's what happens it affects your view of God If you have no Bible, then you have no biblical view of God. Our view of God, what we know about God, God, who God is and what he is like is revealed right here. Nowhere else but right here. Right here. So if you have no Bible, you have no biblical view of God, which leads to diabolical views of God, which leads to destruction by God. He's going to destroy those who reject him. And here, that's what we see in verse 2. Look at verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. That is a terrifying verse of scripture. He goes on to say, I'm going to sweep away man, beast, birds, and fish. Listen, church, when I read this, I thought about, because I was was comparing judgment and joy, and I thought about revelation. One of the most powerful verses of scripture that capture joy is when in Revelation uh, chapter 21 it talks about uh, that the Lord will wipe away every tear from their eyes man can you think of a better verse to describe joy than that one that he's going to wipe away everything that brings sorrow and pain he's going to wipe away every tear what a picture of joy And then right here in Zephaniah 1, 2, and 3, we have a terrifying picture of judgment. That God does not say here, I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eye. He says, I'm going to sweep away every eye. I'm going to utterly destroy every man, beast, fish, and bird. Utterly destroy them. So we see this dichotomy here of judgment and joy that Zephaniah points us to. He goes on to say, I'm going to cut off all mankind in verse 3. From the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And verse 4, it doesn't get any better. It just does not get any better. It gets a whole lot worse. Look at verse 4 in chapter 1. I will stretch out my hand, not against Egypt. Remember, he told Moses, God did, that I know that Pharaoh's not going to let you go. In fact, the only way that Pharaoh's going to let you go is if a mighty hand comes against him, unless he is compelled by a mighty hand. And God says, I will stretch out my hand against Egypt with all the wonder that I will do in it. And to stretch out his hand simply means this. If you were to define that, it means this. To a motion of a limb of the body with a focus that an action will occur. Theologian Mike Tyson said it this way. (laughs) Everyone has a plan. Until they're punched in the mouth. Right? I bet it'd be terrifying to be punched in the mouth by Mike Tyson in his prime. But how much more terrifying will it be to be punched in the mouth by God Almighty himself? And that's what he's saying. I'm going to punch you in the mouth. I'm going to stretch out my hand against Jerusalem, Judah, all the inhabitants. Listen, God's infuriated. Okay? Okay? In Zephaniah 1 through through 4, God is infuriated, and we wonder why. Why, What what has brought God to this place of judgment? Well, we see it in verse 4, 5, and 6. And here's these terrible views of God. Here's here's where the views of God are just so terrible. Look at the first one, uh, verse uh, 4. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest. In other words, Israel had dipped into idolatry, they were seeking another God. And God is jealous for us. He alone is worthy of our worship. And they had forsaken their God and going after another God. That that is idolatry, seeking another God. And and you need to understand that that this is becoming a reality in our nation today. Let, Let me say it like this. There is coming a day, I believe in, in my lifetime, I'm 45 and I believe we'll see this happen in my lifetime, that there will be Christians in this nation. In America, there'll be followers of Christ in America, not in another nation, in America, that will do jail time because they will not renounce the exclusivity of Christ. Because we, will, because we believe and stand on the... I mean, it's the tenet of our faith. It's, it's who we are, that Christ is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to the Father. Praise God, there's any way at all. And Jesus is the only way. And there's coming a day that if you do not renounce that in this country, you're going to go to jail. I believe that with all my heart. We see it already happening. There are some candidates, presidential candidates, that are going to run on a platform that say, hey, if there's any church or institution that is not for same-sex marriage, they're going to lose their tax-exempt status. That's the platform they're running on. That's one step closer. That's one step closer to one. And so here's what we must do. What must we Here's what we must do. We have to decide right now. Are we going to stand on the conviction of the word? This is a non-negotiable. The exclusivity of Christ is a non-negotiable. He's the only way to the Father. He's the only way to heaven. He's our only hope. He's the only way we can be saved. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so we've got to decide today we're not going to be bought. We're not going to be bullied. We're going to stand on this truth and seek no other gods. There's a reason why the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't say that every knee that followed Christ is going to bow. It says every knee and every tongue. Regardless if you're a follower of Christ, or if you're a nun, you don't believe anything, or if you're an atheist, or agnostic, or Hindu, or Buddhist, it doesn't matter. Every knee one day will bow, and every tongue confess that Christ is indeed Lord. And so Zephaniah is making it clear in his day, there will be no idolatry, there will be no more worship of any other God. Christ alone and Him crucified is our message. That is what we preach, that is what we believe, that is what we live, that is what we declare, that is what we share. There's no other God like him. So think about what is an idol in your life. What is the thing that you are addicted to? That thing that you are fixated on. That is your idol. That thing that you'll sin to get it and you sin if you don't get it. It's that, it that's what it is. What is that? And look what happened in verse 5. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. So here they're not only worshiping another god, they're worshiping additional gods. We call it pluralism or syncretism. They're syncing all these religions together. They want to cover all their bases. So they're worshiping astrology on the roofs of their homes. They're bowing the knee to the Lord and to this other god, Milcom. And God is infuriated about it. He's infuriated about it. He's going to cut them all off and sweep us all away for those who have forsaken him and gone after other gods. And then look at verse 6. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. This is a good definition of apathy. Just being apathetic. It's not that you don't believe. You believe in the Lord, but you don't seek him anymore. Uh, you, and it may be a, a multiple of different reasons why you don't. You say, well, I tried that once. It didn't work. I used to pray, but God doesn't answer, so I'm done with that. Or I used to read my Bible, but I don't understand it, so I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. And you move on to other interests like maybe money or politics or hobbies or career or whatever it might be. And you're not seeking him anymore. You're not desperate anymore. Your passion for the Lord has cooled off. And we don't, we're not desperate anymore. It's going to bring your heart extreme joy when we get to chapter 3 and, you, and we see how desperate we ought to be for God. And, and I'm going to wait on that. You'll see that in a moment. But we've lost that. We're not desperate anymore. Zacchaeus was desperate. Zacchaeus was desperate. He had a terrible view of God because he was short in stature. He couldn't see him. So he climbed a sycamore tree. He was desperate. i got, I got to see him. So he climbed a tree, and so many of us are, are, are small in stature, not physically, but theologically. We're small in stature. We have terrible views of God, terrible, pathetic views of God because of all the distractions and everything that's happening in our world and in and our families, and, and, and we're no longer desperate, and our passion is cooled off for the Lord. And Man, how do we fix that? Let me tell you, you fix your eyes on Jesus. You look to the cross, man. You get in the word. I'm telling you, if you will fix your eyes on Jesus, he will fix your heart. But you got to fix your eyes on him. Number two, here's a reality we have to deal with. It's the word complacency. Complacency today leads to condemnation on that day. Now, verse 12, we've already seen this about complacency. Look at it again. I will punish the men who are complacent. Now, the word complacent, think about it this way. Anybody drink coffee? Coffee drinkers? Right, who, hot chocolate drinkers. Anybody hot chocolate? Yeah, y'all are my peeps. Hot chocolate drinkers. Coffee drinkers? Uh, you know, I still I don't drink coffee even today. I've never drink coffee. But you know when you have a cup of coffee or hot chocolate, you know that, um, that, that sludge that will kind of accumulate at the bottom of the cup? You know what I'm talking about? That, that's what the Hebrew is depicting here when it talks about complacency. In fact, if you look at the, at the Hebrew itself, it, it says that it's a, it's a settling down. It's becoming comfortable and settling down. It's being stagnant in spirit or people that have floated to the bottom, literally. People that have floated to the bottom like good-for-nothing sludge. It's being complacent in our hearts. And so God says that he will punish those who are complacent and let's see what led to this so look back at verse 7 in chapter 1 be silent before the Lord God praise God there's coming a day when the world's going to be quiet going to be silence before God, almighty God for the day of the Lord is near alright look at verse 8 and the day of the Lord's sacrifice I will punish the officials and the kings and the sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire foreign attire is speaking of of idol worship anybody who's worshipping pagan gods and idol worship they're going to be punished Okay, that's what foreign attire means. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. You know, one thing I love about expository preaching, preaching through books of the Bible, not just cherry-picking sermons here and there, and, uh, you know, preaching what I want to, you know, just picking something out, but preaching through texts like this. The reason I I like that is it covers issues that you're going to deal with in in, in your life. It's just going to cover everything. The Bible's living and active. How many of you know that? It's alive and it's active. And it's living. And I've been looking for some kind of scripture, and I've come across it here in Zephaniah. Look at it again, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 9, everyone who leaps over the threshold. Now, this was a pagan practice that was practiced in Philistine during Zephaniah's day. But today, it, it, it's quite a leap, I will admit. It's not the best exegesis I'll admit and it's probably completely out of context which I'll admit but I've been looking for a verse to point my girls to to tell them about the pagan practice of leaping over the threshold of mom and dad's bedroom and bathroom (laughs) don't come in our room or our bathroom leaping over the threshold that's completely out of context but this was a pagan practice they were diving into, and God is not happy about it. On that day, declares the Lord, verse 10, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, walls, second quarter, a loud crash. I mean, this is going to be a terrible day of judgment. Well, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. Verse 11, at that time, I will punish the men who are complacent in their hearts, in their hearts. That's the point I want to make here, complacent in their hearts. People like you and me who say, Lord... Uh, he's not going to do anything good he's not going to do anything ill why obey him it won't make any difference I pray he doesn't answer it doesn't make a difference I read the Bible and understand it makes no difference why show up on Sundays that won't do any good and we become complacent but what we need to know is the Bible (laughs) the Bible can woo the wayward heart can heal the broken heart it can convict the complacent heart that's what the Bible does man that's why we need it that's why we need to get into the word But here's the sad reality. Most people today do not believe this day is ever coming. Most people that you'll see this week do not believe that the day of the Lord will ever come. In fact, Peter said they are scoffers scoffing about it. It's never going to happen. Where is this coming? He's not come yet. He's not coming. So our world does not believe this is ever going to happen. But, church, I'm telling you, God has been crystal clear in His Word. In fact, Revelation ends with an invitation Come, Lord Jesus, come. I mean, this day's happening. He's coming again. You'll either be on the side of judgment or joy. In fact, Paul said it this way, that God has fixed a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and he's given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. Jesus is the judge, and he's coming to judge. So let's not be complacent. Let's be desperate for him. Number three. Number three, today's wealth won't help on the day of wrath. We see this in verse 18 in chapter 1. Today's wealth will not help on the day of wrath. The silver and the gold are mentioned here. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them, verse 18, on the day of the wrath of the Lord. I thought about in the book of Acts, where you have Peter and uh, going to the temple to pray, and there's the lame beggar, and He's, and, and, and Peter says, silver and gold we do not have, but what we do have we give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, take up your bed and walk. You know what the guy did? He started leaping, didn't he? How many times did people come by and give him silver and gold? And he didn't leap one time. When he, got the, when he was begging and getting those coins, he didn't leap one time. But when, he, the, when the joy of Jesus was spoken, when Jesus was spoken in, when Jesus healed him, when he met the Savior, he couldn't help but leap. And he got up and leaping and running around and people were looking at him and so said, that's the beggar, that's the guy I've given money to. And he never acted like that. What in the world did Peter give to him? Made him act that way. Jesus! In other words, this wealth is not going to help us on the day of wrath. In Zephaniah's day, there were people who were self-reliant. I mean, that's, that's who we are. You know why we're not desperate for God? Because we're not desperate for anything. We've got everything. And our wealth will lead us to to, to this place where we are complacent and we don't need God. We're not desperate. Where's our desperation? It's gone. Why, Why is our passion cooled off for the Lord? Because of all our stuff, we don't have any needs. But in reality, we have great needs. His mercies are new every day because we need them every day. The gospel is good every day because we need the gospel every day. Jesus said this about all this wealth. Hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. By the way, we're all rich. Compared to the world, all of us are wealthy. So none of us will enter the kingdom of heaven based upon our riches. And it's real hard for us to get to the place where we're desperate for him. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, Jesus says. Don't store up treasures on earth where rust and moth destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up treasures in heaven, where rust and moth do not destroy. and Thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Your wealth today will not help on that day. Number four, get humble today so you won't be humiliated on that day. Chapter 2 is all about humility and humiliation. Kind of all together here. I'm not going to read through chapter 2, but there's plenty said here about humility. Look at verse 3. Seek the Lord for all you humble of the land. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Get humble now. Get humble before the day comes. You don't want to be humbled on that day because that'll be a great day of humility If you are not in Christ. So humble yourself now. And the picture we see of that is not as Philippians 2. Where Jesus humbled himself. Came obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Why would he do that? So that you and I. Could become children of God. That's why he did that. He humbled himself. He wasn't forced to do that. He didn't have to pay off Satan that was not what that was about he voluntarily humbled himself to ensure that you and I could be brought into the family of God what an example for us to humble ourselves you can read in verse 8 verse 10 there's taunting and there's boasting among the nations and God is furious about that you can read in verse 15 this is an exultant city They are a proud city. They live securely. They say in their heart, I am and there's no one else who can touch us. Nobody's going to touch us. And that pride and arrogance will lead to humiliation on that day. Milford Biddle said it this way, Defeat that leaves you humble is better than a victory that leaves you proud. The sun, if the sun got a little bit closer, 92 million miles away, our eyes would burn out of our head. And yet we we casually stroll into the presence of God. We confidently strut into the presence of God like we own the place. When the Creator Himself could destroy us with one thought or word. It is time to humble ourselves. Get humble so you won't be humiliated on that day. Number five. Uh, Verse 3 is very encouraging on the fact that this is not only a day of judgment, but a day of joy. We've seen a lot of judgment, now there's some joy here, so that's good news. And the good news is that God is active today, and He's going to act on that day. That's number 5. God is active today, He's doing something, and He's going to do something on that day. He's going to act then as well. And you can see this just in the language uh, that the Holy Spirit uses here. In fact, look at verse 1 in chapter 3. Woe to her who is rebellious. And defile. Listen, church, uh, being stubborn, stubbornness is not a spiritual gift, okay? (laughs) Some of you are pretty stubborn, right? I see some of you looking at your spouse, how stubborn you are. Or your children. So, but stubbornness is not a spiritual gift. And stubbornness is not something that we should. It, it's not a personality trait that we should celebrate or minimize. We shouldn't say, well, he's just, you know, you know, you know him. He's just stubborn. Or you know her. She's just stubborn. It's, stubborn's the wrong word. The right word is rebellious. That's the right word. Rebellious. Woe to her who is rebellious and so now what the Lord does is he turns uh, the judgment on his own people now at the end of this we'll see the joy and it's very encouraging Uh, but he says woe to her who rebellious and defiled the oppressing city she listens to no voice she accepts no correction she does not trust in the Lord she does not draw near to the Lord stubborn 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 which is rebellion okay it's just what it is rebellion but even in the midst of all of our rebellion and our sin do you know that God's grace is more stubborn than your rebellion and his grace is more stubborn than our sin praise God (laughs) praise God and so God's doing something that's encouraging he doesn't just throw his hands up and destroy us and and that's the end of it The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Verse 5. Verse 6. I've cut off nations. I've laid waste the streets. Verse 7. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. There's hope. Verse 8. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. And then, if you jump over from nine to verse twenty, there's a bunch of "I wills." Look at verse nine. I will change the speech of the peoples to to a pure speech, meaning the Tower of Babel is going to be reversed. Okay, he's going to bring back uh, the speech. And that he says again down in verse eleven, I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Verse twelve, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. Jump over to verse uh, 17, 18. God says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you by his love. He'll gather those of you who mourn the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. He will. I will save the lame. I'll change their shame into praise. Verse 19, verse 20. I'll bring you in. I'll make you renowned and praised. Look at all that God's going to do on that great day of joy God is acting today and he will act on that day but here's what we say pastor I don't know if I can believe this most of our world doesn't believe this and you may be here today and say I just can't believe this because I have too much guilt maybe you say I'm too guilty I'm too guilty for this to be true I'm too guilty for the Lord uh, to exalt over me and rejoice over me. There's no way he's going to do that. I'm too guilty. Well, well, let me encourage you. Look at verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. You say, I'm too guilty. God says, I've taken away the judgments against you. That in Christ, Jesus took away the sins of the world. He took all our judgment upon himself. And he died and went to the grave and rose again. And he gives us life. So you're not too guilty. You're not too far from God. You are not too far out of reach of God's grace. You are not too guilty. Absolutely or are not. You say, I'm too afraid. I've got too much fear. I love this. I love this in verse 16. Fear not, O Zion. Now, God is not saying to... Uh, Don't fear Zion Williamson, the NBA superstar player. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, all of the people of this planet who know me, who belong to me, you fear not. Do not be afraid. Jesus told John in Revelation chapter 1, do not be afraid for I'm the living one. I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Fear not, do not be afraid. So you say, well, I've got too many fears. Well, you shouldn't because the Lord says fear not. You say, well, I've got too many enemies. Too many people are against me. Well, look what the Lord says, if you'll go back up uh, to verse 15. He has cleared away your enemies. See, God is removing every excuse you can come up with. He's removing every one of them. You say, well, it's too distant. You ever had to have a, You ever tried to have a long-distance relationship and it just not work? It's just too far? God just seems too far away. He's too distant. No, he's not. Look what he said. God says this right here in verse 17. The Lord God is in your midst. He is in your midst. You're not too. It's not too far away. You say, "Well, I'm too weak." Well, look at verse sixteen. Let not your hand grow weak. Every excuse, God is removing it. You say, "Well, I'm too hurt." And I know you're hurt. I know you got pain. I know you got suffering. I know you've got loss and separation. I get it. But here's what God says in verse nineteen: "I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. I'll change their shame into praise." And Renown in all the earth and I want you to look back in chapter 3 verse 17 and see what our God is going to do over us He is going to rejoice over you with gladness Do you understand this our God is going to exalt over you? He is going the Bible says to exalt over you with loud singing God is going to sing over you and rejoice over you Don't you imagine that we should be desperate for him? And, and, and have the same passion for him that he has for us? Man, he is passionate for his people. I'm going to rejoice and exult and sing loudly over you. And I'll gather those of you who mourn, and you will no longer suffer reproach. Man, this is good stuff, church. Who knew Zephaniah was so good? The joy of the Lord. Man, what a day that is going to be. A day of judgment, sure, but also a day of joy. And lastly, number, number, number six. Last one, verse 14. We need to sing today like we're going to be saved on that day. We need to sing like we're saved, don't we, church? I mean, don't we? Sing today like you'll be saved on that day. Verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. That language, is it means to be elated. It means to be delighted. It means to have an attitude of joy. Man, what, what, a, what a picture of worship. It means to come to the Lord with this, to be jubilant and, and, and exult and, and rejoice. And, man, what a picture. Now, I, Listen, I don't want to get any worship wars. I'm not going to sit here and argue with you if true worship is one hand raised or two hand raised or one hand raised with a sway or two hands raised with a sway. I'm not getting into all of that. Or the Baptist way, both arms folded and a face like you've been baptized in pickle juice. Right? That's the Baptist way. So I'm going to get into all of that. But what I will say is, is this at least means, at the bare minimum, does it not mean that we will sing? Can we agree on that? Sing like you're saved. Seeing like you've been delivered from darkness into light, man. Seeing like that day's going to be a day of joy for you and not judgment. We can all agree what this not is. This is not a Baptist looking like he's been baptized in pickle juice. I tell you that. That is not what I read here. It's not sing aloud or shout or rejoice or exult. That is not what I see here. And I know we have everything bombarding us and trying to still our joy. That's why David said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I get it. I get it. We're being bombarded with sports and politics and all this other mess in our world today. But please let me say to you today to not let in politics the elephants or the donkeys make you forget, believer, that you belong to the Lamb. And don't let the NBA or the NFL make you forget, believer, that you're a child of the G.O.D., This is our God. This is His message. It's not ours. This will be a day of judgments for some and joy for others. So here's the question, and we're done. Which will it be for you? Will it be a day of judgment for you, or will it be a day of joy for you? That's the question. And so how do I answer that? Well, it depends on what you have done with Christ. Do you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do you believe that He came to live a life that you couldn't live and died in your place? And has offered you a gift. This gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you believe that here? And if you do, will you confess it with your mouth? If you've not done that, today's a great day to do that. And if you don't do that, in that day of the Lord which is nearer today than any other day, and, and it comes and you're outside of Christ, you have every reason to fear. Every reason to fear. Because as Peter says, that day will be a day when the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. It'll come like a thief in the night, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. And Paul says it this way: It'll be a like a like a like a, that day will be like a thief in the night. And people are saying there is peace and security, and nothing's going to happen to us, and we're okay. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, the Bible says destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So if you don't know Christ, that's that's your lot. That's what you have to look forward to. But today, all that can change. You can can put your faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone today. You're not too guilty. You shouldn't be too afraid. You can come to Christ by grace alone today through faith alone. Let me say this to all the believers, and then we'll pray. We just cannot fathom what heaven's going to be like. You know what? The joy is going to be a joy that we've never experienced here in that our joy here is always tainted with sin or disappointment. But listen, this joy that we're reading about in the end of Zephaniah 3, this is a joy that will be unblemished, unadulterated joy. It's going to be untarnished and untouched, untainted, unsmudged, uncorruptible. It'll be uncontaminated. It'll be undefiled and undeniable joy. It'll be unimpeachable joy. It'll be joy that, that we've never experienced this side of heaven before. Man, what a day that will be. Father, we love you. And we-